please remain standing for the reading from Matthew chapter 1, which you can find in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along, um, beginning on page 807. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rohab, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd send your spirit upon us, the same spirit that moved your servant Matthew to record these words. Please grant that your spirit would pry open our cold and resistant hearts and give us grace to hear exactly what you want us to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You may have noticed I moved pretty quickly from announcing the reading to starting the reading. That's to keep you from making a run for the doors uh, because there are a lot of Words and names that are sometimes hard to pronounce, uh, often even hard to read. Uh, you may be scratching your head thinking, why on earth did Matthew begin his book about the most amazing news in the world, the most amazing news that's ever been shared with anyone? Why did he begin it with this long list of names and people? Some of them we might recognize, some of them we know pretty well. David, Solomon, we know those names. Abraham, we even know. But name after name that to us are really only a, just a, a blank slate. We don't really know much about many of the people in that long list. 
Well, I want to suggest there's some really good reasons why Matthew begins here and some really good things for us to think about this Christmas Eve that will actually help us to better understand Christmas, that will help us to better understand who Jesus Christ is and the amazing thing that he has come into the world to do. So amazing, so amazing that we celebrate his birth to this day. I want to give you two topics, two uh, basic uh, points that I'd like for us to think about tonight. The first is creation, and the second is genealogy. Now, you might be scratching your head thinking, what does creation have to do with what we just read or had read to us? Um, This is where it's handy to know a little Greek. Have I mentioned that I'm taking a Greek class? And all of a sudden, I find myself every Sunday just struck, usually very powerfully, by something that I didn't see in English. If you know the passage, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't know the passage, you'll find it on page 7, including a handy-dandy Greek translation. So if you've ever ever wondered what Matthew's writing looked like in Greek, look on page 7 and you'll see you look at the bottom, it says Greek New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And look at the first two words. Biblos geneseos. Geneseos. Um, geneseos is a common noun. It's not a proper noun. It's a common noun. It's genitive. That means it's possessive. It's uh, feminine. And it's the singular form of a word that all of us know. The word is Genesis. So Matthew begins his gospel by saying, there's no article in the Greek, it just says, book geneseos. And because it's genitive, it's possessive, it's book of Genesis. You know, for centuries, and even today in most English translations, The book of Matthew opens the New Testament. And that's not a coincidence. Regardless of how old you think Matthew's gospel is, the fact that it was put where it was put in the the development of the canon that we use today, it's very clear that Matthew's gospel was put first in the New Testament because it has almost the same beginning as the first book in the Old Testament, which, of course, we know is Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis opens in the beginning. The Greek translation for that is Genesis. It's the Hebrew word bereshit, but it's translated into Greek, Genesis. So the Old Testament opens with, in the beginning, bereshit, Genesis, And the New Testament opens with book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis also means beginning, or it can mean, as it's translated here, genealogy. But I want to suggest just thinking of it as a genealogical table is maybe going to miss a really important point. Now, it is significant that Matthew records a genealogy, as does the book of Genesis. In fact, I've read there's something like seven different genealogies, seven different genealogical tables in the book of Genesis. Noah, Abraham, 
Adam has a genealogy. Uh, a number of the patriarchs have their genealogies given. The book of Genesis is also a book of genealogies, but it's also a book of Genesis. Because the other meaning of the word uh, Genesis or Geneseos, besides uh, genealogy, is beginning. The beginning. So what Matthew's giving us here is actually the beginning. Similar, parallel to what Moses does in the book of Genesis. So what Matthew's going to describe here is not only Jesus' family tree. He's going to do that. It's very significant. We'll look at that in a moment. But he also is pointing out that with the coming of Jesus Christ, something is happening that is like a new beginning. A new beginning, a new creation. We're going to read about it at the end of the New Testament in a lot more detail, a whole book that describes the consummation of the new creation that Matthew writes about here at the beginning of his gospel and throughout his gospel and right through the New Testament. We're reading about the beginning of the new creation that Jesus was born to initiate. You see, Jesus' birthday is unlike any other birthday there has ever been. Uh, tomorrow morning, one of our family traditions is we're, we're probably going to have a cake at some point. We're probably going to wish happy, happy birthday to Jesus. But it's a unique birthday it's because it's not only Jesus' birthday. It's the beginning of this new work, this new creation, which we're going to see unfold in the Gospel of Matthew and right through the New Testament. This is not simply the story of a man that had some adventures and some interesting experiences and some interesting things to say. No, what Matthew is telling us is that in Jesus Christ, we see the one who initiates the new creation that will one day result in what we read about in the book of Revelation. So the, the New Testament's put together really well. It opens with the genesis of the New Testament and it closes with the pronouncement in the last chapters, the pronouncement of this new creation that Jesus began 2,000 years ago and is bringing to perfect conclusion. So when you're gathered around the Christmas tree, it's significant that there's a Christmas tree in almost all of our houses. I know there's all kinds of crazy reasons and history, and we borrowed it from this religion, the other religion, other religions, and some people go on and on and on about that. But there's something significant about the fact that in your living room, very possibly, there's a tree. Because Jesus came into the world in a way that has significance for all of creation. All of creation. You know, it's, it's interesting that in Matthew chapter 1, we have the genealogy. In Matthew chapter 2, what happens? The wise men come, and what are they doing? They're following a star. You know, early in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, God created the stars. He placed the stars in the sky. He created light. Genesis chapter 1. And right through the book of Matthew, we will see again and again these glimpses 
of the significance of Jesus' life and ministry, not only on you and me, but on all of creation. Jesus' work is a lot bigger than we think of. It involves, brothers and sisters, the stars, the cosmos, the universe. Jesus came into the world to initiate this amazing new reality that we see glimpses of when we look out the window. The sun, the stars, the mountains, the sea. We'll see Jesus in the book of Matthew as he engages with the sea. We'll see Jesus engaging with death, which comes to us in the second chapter of Genesis. So Jesus Christ, the the one whose birth we're celebrating, is more than my personal Savior. He is that. Praise God for that. But the wonder thing is, the wonderful thing is, that your Savior and my Savior is also the Redeemer of everything, who is initiating a new creation. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I always thought... uh, A.D., you know, the year A.D., there's B.C., before Christ. I always thought A.D. meant after death. That was when I was a kid. A.D. doesn't mean after death, kids. A.D. means Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Modern scholars today, they don't like that. They've switched over to C.E., the... um, politically correct way of saying the common era. They don't like calling it A.D. because that focuses too much on Jesus. So they often will call it C.E. and you might see that in your textbook these days. But ask your liberal or atheist professor, uh, C.E. what? What What is that number 2022 pointing towards? What is the common era? The common era that our entire culture has acknowledged and embraced, whether they want to admit it or not, is that we count time on the basis of the year, the day that Jesus was born. Now, there's scholarly mathematics and a whole lot of elaborate formula that gave them that day, and we can debate that and what year it exactly was. But we can tell you exactly what they intended to do. They intended to count time from his birth until his return. And this, brothers and sisters, is A.D. 2022. We are 2,020 years, give or take, into the new creation that Jesus has launched by his birth and that he will one day bring to perfect completion. And that is something to celebrate. That is something to think about, to reflect on. It'll drag us out of our complacency. It'll drag us out of the the domestic, sentimentalized idea you and I have about Christmas that we've learned since we were children and that we often teach our children this very domesticated idea of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He has come to reorient everything from the stars to the sea to life and death itself. And that's why we celebrate his birth. Nothing to do with snowmen. Jesus came to initiate a new creation. And Matthew tells us in two words. At the very beginning of his gospel. Book of the beginning. 
Now, he doesn't stop there. As you noticed, I read for several minutes. Because what the book of Genesis tells us, and what the book of Matthew tells us, is that with this beginning, God is particularly concerned about human beings. And in his providence, in his mysterious providence, he seems to take a particular interest in the likes of you and me. Even though Adam sinned, and Eve sinned, and the book of Genesis records sin after sin after sin after sin, God has some interest in human beings. And so the second point I'd like you to think about with me is, as we finish up tonight is this idea of genealogy, or, or you could just call it, you could just call it family tree. Just like the book of Genesis records several family trees, so the book of Matthew begins with a family tree. But what a family tree it is. <laughs> you know, I was, I was doing some reading for tonight, and I looked up what the liberal scholars like to say about uh, the birth narrative in Matthew and in Luke. Both Matthew and Luke record separate, slightly different, different emphases, records of Jesus' birth. And the, guess what the liberal scholars wrote in their many articles? I didn't read many, but I read one or two, and I read about a lot of the others. They all say that the genealogies that we read about in Matthew and Luke are the apostles or that first generation of people who believed in Jesus trying to explain sometimes in almost mythical language that was an expression a lot of the scholars like to use it's a myth it's a creation myth about Jesus and apparently the Romans like to have myths about their heroes you can read about many of the mythical beginnings of gods and heroes they make movies about them uh, it's, it's a thing the Romans like to do. The Greeks like to do it. Uh, apparently, there were many ancient cultures that liked to memorialize their heroes by coming up with make-believe stories about how they were born. And so some liberal scholars have decided, okay, that's what Matthew and Luke are doing. They're making it up. They're just going back. They're pulling out names and ideas. And it's all meant to give this unusual legitimacy to Jesus. And it's all to point towards his miraculous birth and all these things that, that uh, the gospel writers record about him. They start at his birth and they add in all this stuff that's intended to make Jesus like this perfect character. That's what a lot of the myths were about. It was making them seem like real heroes. Well, if Matthew's goal was to come up with a myth that makes Jesus look really, really good, he came up with a very, very inadequate myth. The genealogy that Matthew gives is not one that anybody would cook up who wanted to make Jesus look good. Just look a bit into the, the, the first, um, the, the second verse of the, of the uh, book. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. That makes Jesus look pretty good. But verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. 
Now, those names may mean nothing to you. You probably recognize Judah. He was one of um, the sort of original tribes, and he was the son of Jacob. But Perez and Zerah, you may not recognize, those, those are twins. We have twins in our family. Perez and Zerah were twins. And their mother, who is named, was Tamar. Well, Tamar was not only the mother of Judah's twin sons, Tamar was also Judah's daughter-in-law. Not once, but twice. Tamar married Judah's oldest son, Ur, and his second oldest son, uh, who was called Onan. And then when Onan died, judged by God, well, then Judah took his daughter-in-law, and she was the one through whom Judah beget his twin sons, Perez and Zerah. That's how he fathered these two twin boys, was through his sister-in-law. And that wouldn't be something you'd talk about in polite dinner conversation tomorrow when you're gathered around for your family celebration. Uh, that's one of those deep, dark family secrets that everybody would just as soon no one ever talk about again. But Matthew puts it in verse 3. Jesus' family tree, like your family tree and mine, includes some family embarrassments, some family shame, maybe some family grief. Remember that tomorrow when you're celebrating the birth of Jesus, when you reflect on his family tree. But it doesn't end there. Look a few verses down. Look, look a little bit further down to verse 5. Salmon, not the fish, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, Boaz, we know from the book of Ruth, he's a very important character. We're going to hear a bit more about Boaz. Um, Rahab, his mother, was what we used to politely call a woman of ill repute. Um, you may not want to talk about that at Christmas lunch tomorrow when you're sitting around with the kids and celebrating Christmas. But Matthew talks about it. Matthew puts it in verse 5. Jesus' family tree, like yours and mine, includes some things that make us uncomfortable. It goes on. That's not the, that's not the only family embarrassment. This is just uh, the first few verses. Look, if you would, at uh, what comes after Rahab. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Uh, the Fowlers and, uh, and I... And uh, the Smiths have been doing a Bible study together, and we looked at the book of Ruth. And one of the interesting things about Ruth is she was not Jewish. She was from um, a different tribe. Uh, she was accepted into the family through a very unusual set of circumstances. Uh, but Ruth was not a purebred Jew. 
So having her in Jesus' family tree just underscores again in the first five verses how very strange Jesus' family tree is. It doesn't stop there. I'm not going to go through all of them, don't worry. But if you look just a little bit further ahead, if you look at, at uh, what happens uh, after uh, Obed, there's Obed uh, is the father of Jesse, verse 6. Jesse's the father of David the king. And then look at the very next thing it says. And David was the father of Solomon. Now this is the first person who's not named. It says, who is the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, the wife of Uriah was called Bathsheba. And she is the star of Psalm 51, where King David poured out his heart in grief because not only had he committed adultery with Uriah the Hittite's wife, but he had Uriah put in a situation where it was inevitable that he would be killed. So we're just the first six verses of Jesus' genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but what's being described here is not the ideal Jew. This is not a, a superhero that, that has impeccable credentials. Here is a person whose human genealogy, like yours and mine, includes all kinds of brokenness and sin. Generations of failure. Everything from people whose names we don't even recognize to people like Abraham and David and Solomon, great heroes of the Old Testament, all of whom sinned and whose sin is recorded prominently in the Old Testament. And that's right through the, all these kings who are listed after the deportation to Babylon. You have all these kings Jeconiah and Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and Abiod and Eliakim. Names that aren't really all that well known to us till you get down to uh, Manasseh. You might recognize Manasseh from Sunday school. We have some great Sunday school teachers and they pick out names. And they'll, one or two of them might stick. Well, Manasseh is one of those names that might stick. Manasseh was not a great king. He was a pale reflection of David who was himself a sinner. So you get the picture. Jesus' family tree is it's a mess. But look how it ends. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the, genera from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's, I think I can count it correctly, 42 generations. A lot of generations of sin and brokenness. From Abraham, the father of faith, to the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who was born at Bethlehem and whose birth we'll be celebrating tomorrow morning. That's Jesus' genealogy. What does it show us? It shows us that Jesus came into the world miraculously 
miraculously through Mary. The, the way it's described in verse 16 is intentionally strained because, well, Joseph, who's described as the husband of Mary, was not actually Jesus' father. It's another twist in the tale. Jesus was born by Mary, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that in a few hours tomorrow morning after you've opened a few presents and celebrated a little bit. We'll come and we'll think about the birth of this amazing Christ. But you have here a genealogy. And it's a, it's a full and interesting one. Worth our study. I'm so glad tonight we had the chance to just read these names together and reflect on them for a few minutes. But I want you to notice something. The genealogy that Matthew records is open-ended. Some of the genealogies that we read about, they go backwards. That's kind of the approach Luke takes. If you look at the way Luke recorded the genealogy, he's... His intention was a little different. His purpose was a little different. So uh, in Jesus' genealogy over in Luke chapter 3, verse 24, or 23, you'll see that he begins with Jesus and goes backwards. There's an end point in Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Luke. The end point of the genealogy in the Gospel of Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And it's intentional. It's to show this this reverse genealogy going from Jesus all the way back to Adam, who is called the Son of God. That's Luke's particular focus. But if you flip back to Matthew, Matthew does it exactly the other way around. In Matthew's gospel, the genealogy begins with Abraham, comes forward 14 generations, meets up with David, goes forward 14 generations to the deportation, the great sign of God's judgment on Israel, and then goes forward 14 more generations to Christ. And what that means is the genealogy as Matthew records it, it's open-ended. There could be more written. Now Jesus did not have any children. He was not married, despite what Dan Brown might want to convince you. There's no evidence that Jesus was ever married. There's no historical evidence to say that. But Jesus does have children. He has children who are, like himself, sons of Abraham by faith. Who are, like him, a, a son, sons and daughters of David, the great king. And those children celebrate his birth to this day. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, the end of this gospel what you'll discover is that Matthew says at the very end of the gospel, as Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven, Jesus gives us a commandment to his apostles. And he tells his apostles to take the good news to the whole world, to take it to all the nations, not just the Jewish genealogy, but the whole world, to take the good news of the new beginning, the new creation, to take it to all creation, to take it to the whole world. And he also says, make them disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What he's actually saying is, take this gospel to the whole world, 
Bring people to me. I will be with you always. Bring people to me. Share the good news with people. The Spirit will convict them and lead them in a saving way to put their trust in Jesus, just like Abraham put his faith in the God of the Old Testament, just like David, sinner that he was, put his hope in the God of Israel, just like Jesus points towards his Father. Every sinner has the opportunity to turn to the Savior and in faith become his disciple and to become a member of his family. So what we're celebrating when we celebrate Jesus' birthday is that is the amazing gospel truth that Jesus makes it possible for sinners like you and me to become part of his family. So when we celebrate his birthday tomorrow, we're, we're not celebrating a stranger or some famous hero that we read about in a book. We're celebrating a member of our family who has invited us into his family and made us a part of his family forever. Forever to be a part of this new creation that the New Testament tells us about. And that, brothers and sisters, that is something to celebrate That isn't something to snore over or to forget about or to push to one side and to focus on snowmen and reindeers. That's that's nothing compared to what we celebrate when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. 